Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. Brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. All right, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. And today we're talking about four different stories, three of which involve blasphemy, blasphemy, blasphemy. Uh, We're talking about, of course, the Hamlin University situation in Minnesota, which we'll talk, I think, at the top of this podcast about, then pivot to the anniversary, the eighth anniversary of the attack on Charlie Hebdo. We'll do some reflection on Salman Rushdie. And then at the end, we will close with some... um, insights, discussions of the Twitter files. And joining me, of course, to do all of that are repeat guests. We have Amna Halid. She is a professor at Carleton College. Amna, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And we have Michael Moynihan. Uh, He is a writer, reporter, and a co-host of the Fifth Column podcast. Welcome back, Michael. You are not sitting on the ground like you were the last time you were on the show. You are properly seated. Was I sitting on the ground? Oh, good God, Nico. Yeah, you're like in the middle of your living room or something. Yeah, yeah. I presume there was some reason for it. And I wasn't Uh, just, you know, hungover or something. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. It's always possible. It's it's nice to now have you properly sitting next to, it looks like a bar full of of liquor. Oh, yeah. And and that is not a place there for effect. It is actually there. I can move it if you'd like. But (laughs) I didn't roll it into the shot or anything. (laughs) And you both have very nice, you both look very learned with the bookcases behind you. Yeah, no, I haven't read any of them. I just, I buy them by the yard. So <laughs> an impressive people. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm sitting in Fire's DC offices coming to you from Washington, DC. So it's, it's great to have you both back here. There's a story in higher education that has really captured the headlines. The New York Times just got on the record on it involving Hamlin College or Hamlin University, excuse, excuse me. There's an art history professor over there who uh, was teaching a class on Islamic art. And prior to the class, she had put in her syllabus that some of the images depicted would would in, include the prophet, prophet Muhammad, which uh, in some interpretations of Islam is seen as blasphemous. Um, again, the professor recognized this, or I should say the instructor and adjunct, adjunct instructor over at Hamlin recognized this. And in addition to making, you know, giving, you, giving this trigger warning in the syllabus, also gave a warning before this particular class and said, we're going to be showing some of these images here. If you are uncomfortable seeing them or will be offended by seeing them, you know, you're free to leave the class without any penalty. Uh, Taught the lesson. Afterward, one student did come up to her, say they were offended. Uh, The student later said they were blindsided by this depiction. Uh, It's hard to know how you're blindsided when you're given repeated notice that this thing, uh, this sort of thing is going to happen. Um, and the faculty member lost their job for doing this. Uh, it was described as Islamophobic. You had the president of Hamlin University say that uh, academic freedom should be subservient to, in, to religious offense. And Amna, you were one of the first people out there on this story writing in the Chronicle of Higher Education. How would you hear about it and what's the situation like in Minnesota Hamlin, of course, being, I think, about 45, 50 minutes away from where you teach at Carleton. Yeah, actually, um, thanks for having me on. And I have many, many thoughts on this. So just by way of uh, correcting a few things, the course was not actually on Islamic art history. It's a global uh, survey course. on. The class was, though, on 
a specific play. Yeah, the module was an Islamic art history. So you're right about that. Um, and the how I heard about this was actually I, I had been traveling and I had had like in transit for like 33 hours and I came back home and I got an email from a colleague of mine saying, have you heard of this controversy? Because I've been speaking out about academic freedom issues. And I said, no. And I literally was like in this haze and I read it and it incensed me no end. So in that haze, I wrote a piece and I thought this needs to be out there and it needs to be said. So there are a number of problems that this case at Hamlin presents. One, it is a blatant violation of academic freedom. Um, there is no way that the administration can justify interfering in the curriculum of a professor in this fashion and firing them for um, showing artwork that was very germane to the conversation and is, is part of what was being discussed. So that's the first thing. Secondly, oh, yes, and I do know that Hamlin University says, well, they haven't fired, you know, this technicality because this was an adjunct professor. It only makes them look worse because this is targeting an adjunct professor whose academic freedom is already limited by our current climate. So that doesn't stand very well. They had an agreement for her to teach in spring term, which they subsequently withdrew. So she was not allowed to teach. For, for all intents and purposes, she was let go of what was initially agreed upon. It may not have been a written agreement, but it was an understanding that they had. Hamlin apparently only signs things. At the and that's a technicality that a lot of people like to trot forth in order to kind of undermine or dismiss exactly. the academic freedom concerns. And we at FIRA always say, I mean, when you're on a contract basis, you're an adjunct faculty, the university or the college is under no requirement to renew you, um, but it can't not renew you for a discriminatory reason or a reason that violates the university's own policies. And we, we understand this in other contexts, of course, uh, under non-discrimination law, for example. But if the university has in its policy that it commits itself to academic freedom, and as soon as you exercise that freedom, you receive adverse action for doing so, that's a problem, right? And it creates a chilling effect on campus. And you talk about that, a chilling effect in your piece. Right. So my concerns are about academic freedom. But then my second concern is also about um, what this says about what is allowed and not allowed within the Islamic tradition. You know, I will grant that there are certain schools of thought that see any depiction of Muhammad, as far as I know, as not allowed, not blasphemous. I have not yet myself come across a tradition that that labels these kinds of depictions blasphemous. Now, the reason for that is because this is a 14th century painting, the main one that we're talking about. It's, a, it's painted by a Muslim. It was actually commissioned by a Sunni, so it's not only just a Shia tradition. There is a um, there is a long history of depicting the prophet with reference, with reverence, and this is to celebrate him. This is not a derogatory image in any way, shape, or form. So, to uh, for for Hamlin to take a stance where they have declared the showing of this image as Islamophobic, they're intervening in a conversation that, frankly, they're not qualified to intervene in. They have no business intervening in that conversation, and they're frankly misrepresenting the Islamic tradition. I will grant, once again, that there are schools of thought that think that this is not allowed, but there are as many schools of thought and a very strong tradition of depicting Muhammad, which is Islamic, in, in reverence. So that's the second part. And then the third part, I'm very, very taken aback by Hamlin's stance because not only do they not understand the stance they're taking on a religious position, but they don't understand the very basics of history and the teaching of history. Not looking at primary sources is not an option. That is the bread and butter of what historians do. By saying that some primary source is 
off limits, that's just ridiculous. I mean, are you going to stop teaching, um, I don't know, um, James Baldwin because he uses the well, N-word? Mark Twain, right? I mean, he, he can be seen as a primary source. Mark Twain, I mean, we're going in the literature domain, but are you going to stop teaching like records of slaveholders because they were racist? No, we need to know that because that's how we teach our students what the richness of the history is, both good and bad. So censoring a primary source is not an option. So I object to this as a professor, as a historian, and as a Muslim, uh, I'm going to put on all three hats. So, so what is the so the, what is the showing of one of these images? I used blasphemy at the top. You say this isn't blasphemous under uh, this interpre- interpretation of Islamic doctrine. What it's just offensive. Well, to some, it is offensive. Yeah. To other Muslims, it's not even offensive. I mean, one of the problems with this discourse about diversity and you know how Hamlin has crafted it, and it's not just Hamlin. Many universities are doing this about how we're going to treat sensitivities is to you know, flatten the diversity within these communities and these groups. I mean, how many Muslims are there in the world? Just think about it. And to say that we are all offended by this beautiful depiction of the Prophet, which is very much, as I said, celebrating him and paying respect to him, is is not correct. It's factually incorrect. So um, it's not blasphemy. There are those schools that say it's not allowed, but I have not, you know, in my experience, come across a tradition that describes such depictions as blasphemous. Gotcha. That is a term that some may be using, and um, but that is not a term that I have come across in Islamic traditions. It seems to me like they're laying down, or at least this one student who complained in the university capitulated to that complaint. It seems like they're ra- laying down yet another rake to step on in academia. Because if you read the New York Times, it's very clear that this image, this depiction, and other depictions of uh, the Islamic prophet Muhammad um, are pretty common in academia. They're pretty regularly taught. And the New York Times says that this image itself, which we'll put up on the screen, is housed at the University of Edinburgh. You know, they've had similar paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. A sculpture of the prophet is at the Supreme Court. Folks aren't complaining about that, right? But now that one student has and that complaint has been given credence, it, it seems to me that we're going to start seeing other similar situations, much like we did with the teaching of, as you mentioned, like books or other historical documents that use that mention racial epithets or use racial epithets within them. It's now become kind of a trend in higher education where even quoting or teaching those documents without censoring those epithets is enough to get you Fired, and I, I'm I'm weary that that's what's going to start happening in this situation because the precedent has been set, um, and the university didn't stand firm. Can I um, complicate the situation a little bit? Sure. So one of the things that I think is in the background and needs to be said is that I believe I don't know, but I have heard that there have been other incidents of Islamophobia on Hamlin's campus that students have been upset by. So there is the broader context of that. And I think what the administration has done in this situation is they found an easy scapegoat to make a point of solidarity with these students. So they've really stepped into um but that happens, I mean, that happens all the time, right? So that happened with Nicholas Christakis at Yale, is there were other alleged incidents Precisely. of racism on campus, 
And then Erica Christakis writes her letter about Halloween costumes. That's accused to be racist. And then that becomes kind of the vehicle through which all these other concerns about racism on campus are channeled to the detriment of free speech and academic freedom. Precisely. And I just wanted to kind of lay that out as the context in which this conversation is taking place. So there may well be other legitimate issues that these students may have, but this action by the administration in responding to this student complaint is not the right one. The other thing I want to say is that I've seen a number of um, media outlets vilify the student. Look, as a professor, my stance is students are students, they're there to learn. They don't know. I presume ignorance when they come. And I am going to presume ignorance and goodwill on the part of the students too. But what is absolutely reprehensible is what the administration has done in response. So we need to focus very clearly on the administration over here because they're the ones who have taken a misstep. Yeah, I mean, they responded by saying this was undeniably inconsiderate, disrespectful, and Islamic phobic. And then they hosted a forum on December 8th, according to the New York Times report, attended by several dozen students, faculty, and administrators, uh, and the student who complained. Um, and Why even bother having the forum? Because when you say something like that, you proceed it with the word undeniably. As a person who is in the administration, you say it is not deniable that this is Islamophobic. And you know, for those of us, outside, thankfully outside of the university system these days. The other jarring thing about that quote is it comes from somebody named Dr. David Everett. And he his, his position is associate vice president of inclusive excellence, which sounds like a joke that someone's kidding, inclusive excellence. And he's the associate vice president. Presumably there's other people in the office of inclusive excellence. And this is the kind of thing that you read and you say, good Lord, how distant are these people from what's happening in the actual world? And to point out the billions of Muslims and the flattening of it is one of the most offensive things. And, you know, as a non-Muslim, I, if I were a Muslim, and I think that was the great thing about the headline of your piece, I'd be offended by the presumption from a bunch of people who aren't Muslims, who are policing on behalf of Muslims in saying, well, this interpretation and it could be a Wahhabist interpretation. We're going to take the most extreme interpretation because that's the one that's going to be, you know, pregnant with the most offense. People are going to be more likely to be offended in an in environment of open learning if you adhere to the most extreme version of, of an ideology, of a religious belief. And so when you, when you kind of bend to that so quickly and you say it's undeniably Islamophobic, and of course the person, there's, you know, I guess he was the, the head of the art department, who objected. And by the way, let me just briefly say, there is something from the perspective of fire and from people like me who actually care about free speech issues, there's something heartening about this case. And the heartening thing is that there's been a lot of really good responses to it. The New York Times wrote a very, very good piece about it. It was very even-handed, it, it, you know, but it, it saw that this was an important uh, thing that was happening in, in uh, Minnesota, that a person adjunct or not is, is actually being fired for showing a 14th century work of art. And to the point that these are primary sources, uh, both of you, Nico, uh, you talking about books, is that this has been really distressing to me um, because you know I go through my bookshelves and I say, when people walk into my house, I say, God, I hope you don't think I believe this stuff, but I have to know <laughs> about this stuff. You know, in you know, Germany, which has for a very long time until recently, had a very stupid prohibition on the publication of Mein Kampf. The, the, I believe the copyright is held by the, the Bundesland of, of um, Bavaria. So they decided to do it recently and they put it out as an academic 
version of the book that has academic comment within it. I think that's great. I think that's a perfectly uh, good thing to do. And I think it's really useful. But you could always get these things in an academic context. I mean, how can you write about your you know, country's hideous recent history without going through these primary source documents that are not only, you know, have this kind of anti-Semitism that is just, you know, laced through the entire thing, but it's an eliminationist anti-Semitism to borrow from Daniel Goldhagen, that it is this kind of call to genocide. It's not just mean comments, but that stuff all exists. And you have to, and, you know, I read an old piece recently um, it's from the New York Times in the 90s about these, uh, neo, these Nazi propaganda films that had been circulating on video cassette at the time. And they talked to two Jewish organizations and they said, no, we need these. You have to watch these. You have to understand the kind of etymology of some of this hatred and to ban this because it might sort of, you know, inspire feelings about, you know, from people who will probably be inspired by something else is absolute lunacy. But, you know, in this case, I think that in, you know, I, I understand being a university professor, you, you don't want to impugn the motives or um, the students at all. But, you know, I'm outside that system, so, <laughs> so forgive me. Um, but they are adults. I, the, the comment that I read in the Times, which I noted down, which really blew me away, was the response from the student who complained, who said, I'm like, this can't be real. I don't believe you for a second. I don't believe you thought that. And, I know, and, and when asked by the New York Times, why did you not take these trigger warnings at face value? and back, She didn't respond. Uh, the reason she didn't respond is because she, she heard every one of them and was there for this purpose. That's my guess. Now, this is pure speculation, but I want to guess that, you know, what happened happened because this person had kind of planned it out. The next thing is, as a Muslim and a black person, what does race have to do with this? What I see when I start seeing phrasing like this is somebody who's following kind of a playbook of, a, of, of grievance. And I don't mean to be overly kind of ideological about this or, you know, use these phrases that sound like I'm bomb throwing. But when I see this can't be real, it's a it's a picture from the 14th century. It absolutely can be real when you're in an art history class, you would see a picture like this. And I suspect when I see things like that, that people are, um, you know, really, you know, putting another rake for you to step on. There are people who are angling for a fight. And of course, I do lay most of the uh, blame on the administration. It reminded me of Evergreen. And I was at Evergreen um, two days after that whole debacle. And in the piece that I produced for the HBO show I was doing at the time, there was a brief section where I'm talking to George Bridges, who is the, the president. Um, president of the college. I didn't put a lot of the stuff in because, you know, it was a five minute piece and I, I wanted to make it as fair as possible. And if I put some of this other stuff in there, it would have made it seem like I was beating up on him. I put a couple of them much later on my Instagram, just videos, but there was an amazing moment when I said to George Bridges, I said, look, um, you know, I think that you're, you know, wargaming this to figure, and he said, I didn't use that phrase. And I said, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. He said, I, that was your phrase, not mine. And I said, okay. And I just moved on, wargaming. And then he's trying, he's saying something else. And it, he was describing to me what Muhammad Ali did in the Rumble in the Jungle, he was rope-a-doping. He was, you know, absorbing all the punches to tire people out. I said, rope-a-dope. And he said, that's your phrase, not mine, very nervously. And I said, good God, what is happening here? And then later I realized that even the word rope had scared him. Uh, war scared him. And I was sitting in front of a person who was just absolutely terrified the teacher was afraid of the pupils. And I think that's a lot of these responses. I mean, George Bridges is not a dumb guy. 
but he was, you know, jelly spined in the face of this student opposition, which I knew in his heart of hearts, he, he understood was a, a, a mad mob. And he acceded to the mob very quickly. And the reason he did so was he, he thought that was the best thing to do. And I suspect this is probably true of, and again, this is a lot of speculation here, but um, true of, of the administration. Yeah, I mean, this is something you see on, on other college campuses, right? So there's a complaint that happens like this, and then the university has a playbook taken from other colleges for responding to it. They say they're going to host a forum. The forum ends up not being a forum for discussion and debate of the issues. It ends up becoming a therapy session, uh, a grievance sessions. And you saw that in this case, right? They hosted the forum. They had students, uh, faculty, administrators there. You had one member of CARE Minnesota who said, if somebody wants to teach some controversial stuff about Islam, go teach it at the local library. And then you had this one, which not is the like- the university? <laughs> yeah, I guess not. Um, Behind then, the local CVS. And then you had this professor, Mark Berkson, a religious professor at the, at the university who raised his hand and asked this question. He said, when you say trust Muslims on Islamophobia, what does one do when the Islamic community itself is divided on an issue? Because there are many Muslim scholars and experts and art historians who do not believe this was Islamophobic. And during this exchange, uh, the department head, Ms. Baker, uh, and an administrator separately walk up to him, put their hands on his shoulders and say, this was not the time to raise these concerns. So, I mean, it tells you what the purpose of the forum was. We talked about the administration previously making the statement that this was undeniably Islamophobic. And you see this in other contexts too. I was reminded in reading this of an op-ed by Robin Keller in the Wall Street Journal uh, in November. She was a you know a former retired equity partner at Hogan Lovells, which is a big law firm. And in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, they held an organized online conference call, a forum to discuss the decision for female employees. And uh, Robin raised the, you know, the question, well, what do you do when many jurists and commentators believe Roe had originally been wrongly decided? And for that, uh, she was marched but before HR. Her um, Later that day, they suspended her contracts, cut off her contacts with clients, removed from email and document systems, you know, the whole kit and caboodle, right? I believe held by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, by the way. What was? The row was wrongly decided initially. It was, it was, oh, yeah, it was there's, jurisprudence, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of people who argue right, that, yeah, you know, I mean, whatever you yeah. think of the outcome of the case, the reasoning for it was, yes, that was the you answer, know, yeah. convoluted yeah, exactly. and, and wrong. But, said, yeah. but, but that's what you see often in these cases. And you saw you had a forum like this at Evergreen, too. It ended up turning into a struggle therapy session, whatever you want to call it. And it wasn't actually a forum to debate. And, you know, you hear this all the time. We need to have these important, difficult conversations. But is that really what you're looking for? You know, or are you just looking for a way for people to let off some steam on one side of the issue while the rest of us remain quiet? Can I ask a question to the both of you? I mean, I mean, because no, it's no, rare that I have a situation <laughs> where, you know, I can I get to ask somebody who is, a, you know, Muslim, a scholar, somebody in the academic universe, that the president of Hamlin College said that it was a, quote, image forbidden for Muslims to look upon which was projected on a screen and left for many minutes. I love that the idea that it was burning them alive because it left for many minutes. Um, and that respect for the observant Muslim students in that classroom should have superseded academic freedom. But second part of that sentence is so self-evidently preposterous that we can ignore it. But what I wonder what you guys would say to, what if it were offensive 
to Muslim students. And this, can you not teach it then? You get, I mean, this person did what they were supposed to do in the sense of like, I gave you all the trigger warnings. I gave you in on the syllabus, on the day before class, during the class, a two minute warning, as they called it, even if it were that, should the ideas of a particular uh, religious group supersede the learning about it in a particular way. Meaning, we don't, I can't use the word blasphemy. I understand that that's not exactly what's happening here. But, but for the sake of argument, let's say, should your visions of blasphemy apply to me when I'm not a Muslim? And most of the people in the class are not. One person is. Even if it were offensive, is it, is it not okay to teach that either way? I mean, that's the point, is to feel uncomfortable and have things that are offensive be thrown in your face in a way to debate them. I think that's great to me, but I'm different. Um, I'll weigh in here. Um, I personally feel that you can't say that any group of students as a whole is essentially going to be offended, right? Even Correct, if you yeah, put on yeah. a picture that most Muslims might consider offensive. I mean, offense is a very personal thing. So the first thing is, we're not beholden by a religion to take offense. We have different ways of reacting to it. And I loved what, um, there is a professor, and I might mangle her name, so forgive me, um, Audrey Trichke, and she teaches um, Hinduism. And she she, she had a fantastic thing on Twitter where she's like, you know, when my students get offended in class, I tell them to hold that offense, bracket it, and engage and learn. And that offense is a good moment for you to actually dive deeper into thinking about why you're offended and querying it. My view is, no, I do not think that there is anything that should be off limits in terms of teaching. However, so everything should be there. I do think there is something to be said for contextualizing. It is our response. It is, you know, just as we have academic freedom, we have academic responsibility. I wouldn't spring something like that on students. I would contextualize it. I would frame it. I would even, you know, prepare students. And if it is truly something that I anticipate is going to offend students or certain students, I wouldn't make them a, a block of Muslim students or Hindu students or anything. I'd just say certain people might find this offensive. I might give them an out or I might flag it for them. And I cannot emphasize enough how appropriate the professor in this case was. Not only had she put warnings on the syllabus, this was not left on the screen for minutes. She had announced when it was going to be shown. She told the students when they can blank their screens because this was an online class. And, and then she also announced when they can come back, when that image is off. So I think there is a little misrepresentation going on about how this image was itself shown. I cannot think, I myself cannot come up with a more sensitive way of showing this image. So in my mind, in my view, no, no image, no document, no text should a priori be banned or censored in a classroom. These are all moments of teaching. You can be teaching a really good thing by showing something that is very offensive to make a really sophisticated point. That's okay with me. Um, However, I do think that framing is important. Having said that, it is interesting to me that despite all these trigger warnings and all this discourse we've had about, you know, how essential to it is to give these warnings, clearly they were totally ineffective. And this takes us into another debate, which I have many opinions on. Uh, and there's research on this to show that this actually is, is pointless. But I want to agree with what Nico was saying in response to you, Michael, which is I think a lot of institutions do these and they're called community conversations. I love the Oh, sure. They it's very are. performative. It's really just to check a box. And um, frankly, most of the people who are in it also know that it's performative. I feel that most of the administration knows it. There's some 
people who believe it. But um, I don't think that there is any reasonable person who thinks that any real conversation comes out of these kinds of community conversations that are staged by the administration. I, I, I do have to ask, though, okay, so in the academic context, in the classroom, this faculty member had given a trigger warning on the syllabus, had given prior notice before showing the image, but a lot of the reporting about this, including your article in the Chronicle, the image is a featured image. This, this, this Including the New York Times, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah. this kind of 14th century masterpiece no one's getting any notice before they click on that click on that article, right? It was in the print edition too by the times. Uh, and I actually, I mean, I I that seeing the image I think is important to understanding the story, and I appreciate that sort of courage in showing the image so that people can understand the story. Courage that was missing in some prior controversies, uh, you know, thinking of. Um, the Charlie Hebdo and the Muhammad cartoons controversy of 2005 and, and whatnot. So what was what was kind of the thinking there? I, maybe you didn't have a choice. It was chosen by the editor, Amna. Um, but I, that was something that was notable. Yeah, I don't choose the image um, of the pieces that I write. Those are editor, editorial choices. But I'm, I'm glad for it to be chosen. I think uh, this was featured in the Chronicle of Higher Education. We're talking about education. We're talking about a huge controversy. So I was happy for the image to be shown. Um, what are the rules that govern... Uh, the New York Times or other media, I don't know. I suspect most authors don't have a choice in terms of the image that is shown, at least not when I've sent in stuff. Um, <laughs> or the title that or is Or the chosen. title that is chosen. Yes, often I get a lot of pushback on the title. This title, however, was mine, and I was very grateful that they kept it. Um, but I do get pushback for t other, other titles, but um, this was mine, so I can take pushback for this one. Um, in terms of, again, showing this image in a newspaper, I mean, you know, you see a lot of images in a newspaper. There are a lot of images that are offensive. So which community are you going to? I mean, a newspaper is serving a wider community of readers. So I'm, I think it's okay to print it if you're talking about a controversy. And I think if there are people who are so concerned about what, what they might look upon, then the onus is on them. Camille Foster, my co-host on the fifth column, one of my co-hosts, uh, pointed this out the other day when, particularly on racial controversies, because you know he, he, he writes, he talks, he, he does a lot surrounding those issues. And he pointed out something that, that is undeniably true. And I went back and I was going through and testing this, that how frequently these days when somebody says something, tweeted something, maybe when they were in high school, there was an example of this recently when they were, I think, in middle school, and you can't find the tweet. There's no reference to it because it itself is a piece of dynamite. And so therefore, we don't want to have anyone get close to this. It might blow their hands off. So you can't even find what the offense is or what people are supposedly offended by. And you see that, you know, in a bigger sense in the past, you know, when Yale published that book about the Muhammad cartoon uh, crisis in Denmark. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Cartoons with it. So they wouldn't actually put the cartoons in the, you know, and Fleming Rose, who ultimately, I think, published his his book, which is actually a fantastic book. It's one of the best uh, books on freedom of expression out there, it Tyranny is of Silence. Really, it's so really good. good. And he, I had dinner with him and, New York when he was shopping that around and he couldn't find a publisher for it. Uh, Cato ultimately published it because, you know, they were fine with it, but mainstream publishers were, well, we don't know. And we tend to forget that this goes back to 89 and that the, the controversy around the satanic verses was, you know, at first the publication, but not really, no one cared. And then when the fatwa happens, 
Then the publisher's talking about this a little more. The controversy then becomes about, should we pub publish it in paperback? That was actually an enormous discussion that happened. Should we publish it in paperback? Will certain places carry it in the UK? WH Smiths wouldn't carry it, et cetera. Um, you know, people tend to forget the bookstore in Berkeley that was bombed um, because they were carrying it. And I think Salman was going to speak there too. Can, can I ask you a quick question about yeah, the publishing sure. of the paperback version? Because I, I recall, I was told by some lawyers who were involved in it way back when, that there was like a consortium of publishers that got together to publish it. So it wasn't, wasn't under one publisher's name. So they, they couldn't yes, be it was attacked. an I am Spartacus moment. Yeah. yeah. That, that <laughs> you can't get all of us sort of thing, which is something that doesn't happen anymore. And, and there's, I think this is a really interesting thing about this and people tend to often forget about it is these cultural changes that make a huge difference in how these stories are handled. At the time, there were very few people in the kind of intellectual world that didn't come down on Salman Rushdie's side. A few really stepped up like, Christopher Hitchens, who, you know, gave him a place to stay uh, at his apartment in D.C., et cetera. But, you know, you had a few, like John le Carre, who was horrible on this, absolutely dis despicable. And Who's that? Um, You're gonna uh, John le Carre, the, the spy novelist who, uh, the author, and who, you know, wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and, you know, oh, Rush okay. never forgave him. And, of course, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam, who said he should be he should be hanged. I said it on public on, on television and then denied it. Um, then somebody resurfaced the clip a couple of years ago. And someone actually called John Stewart. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe it's, he told me this, he called John Stewart after that uh, thing that they had in DC, the rally for sanity, which he had with Stephen Colbert. And um, he had Cat uh, Stevens, Yusuf Islam play. And he said, if this is the rally for sanity, you should know that this man suborned by death at some point, but there was not a lot of it. So then you get up to the Charlie Hebdo stuff. You see the disgraceful response from so many people in Penn and, you know, you can name 50 different examples and you kind of have this kind of overlap, this collision now with this declining interest in free speech, particularly among students too, and this culture of feelings and comfort and words being violence. And so when that didn't exist in 1989 or exist in a very sort of limited way, people were, were really interested in saying, hey, we're arguing free speech all the time. And that's against right-wing lunatics who are attacking two live crew, who are attacking, you know, heavy metal bands for being quote unquote satanic. And then there's a, oh, there's a religious element of this here with Salman Rushdie. They, they stuck with it. And now you have so many of these people in universities who are the censors. They are the people that are effectively the same as the Christian conservatives were in the 1980s. And I find it really stunning. And one of the things that, that we didn't mention, maybe you did mention it, was that the professor that you say who's, you know, spoke during the forum and these people came over and put their hands on him like it was a religious revival, putting it on his shoulders and saying, sir, please do not say this here. That professor wrote a letter to the newspaper defending it. Nothing offensive. Did he, did he say you must include the photo? You must have a picture <laughs> of Muhammad? No, nothing, just a letter. And they pulled it. One of the things that I thought was amazing about this, this is a student newspaper pulling a, something they've already printed, right? Um, one of the most amazing things about this was I realized how different it is being at university now among certain people, but this is definitely a thing now that didn't exist when I was younger. And this is the line from their editorial that was semi-coherent and, and semi-literate. It said, one of our core tenets to minimize harm 
I'm sorry, this is the newspaper's core tenant is to minimize harm, not to spread information, not to enlighten people on things, but to minimize harm exists for us to hold ourselves accountable for the way our news affects the lives of individual students. Whatever the hell that means, it is we're trying to protect students from the news, which I found to be something so outrageous that I can't believe it wasn't in the New York Times article. Did you read Did you read that line in there where they said, in no way are any of us on the staff or on the editorial board experts about yes, journalism or trauma? Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I said, obviously. 101. But I want to say, you know, does it come as a surprise that that's not one of their core tenants when the institution's core tenant is is they're willing to subordinate it to sensitivities. I mean, I'm not surprised that so stu- if their students are taking their lead from administrators um, at institutions like these, who, who needs the right wing to come up with anti-CRT laws and laws about what can and cannot be taught when our educational leaders are doing it themselves? We have a grave problem on our campuses, which is that academic freedom is under attack. And I don't say this as a professor. It's not like I love to go into my classroom and say incendiary things and have the freedom to say. <laughs> just in any of that. I say this because it's the learning of the next generation. And that is what is at stake over here. And the attacks are coming fast from the right and the left and the center. I don't know. Everyone seems to be uninterested in academic freedom these days. But the losers eventually are going to be our students and our democracy. And I think that needs to be front and center over here. And um, I, I do want to say that this case has raised some very important questions about what the kind of dominant paradigm about DEI is on college campuses and how that is, you know, it's kind of, in a way, this case is a gift because it throws into sharp relief what these tensions are and why these two ideas cannot be compatible in this fashion. I'm very pro-diversity, inclusion, and equity. Who wouldn't be in this day and age or any day and age, but not in the ways in which it's being played out on college campuses. And the problem with the discourse is that it's very condescending towards students. It assumes that they'll get infected by ideas. They'll immediately, you know, go with a particular flow of whatever they're exposed to. And that's what you see in the student newspapers rationale for censoring. Oh, we don't want to harm anyone. Well, I'm really like now addressing the students out there. You're much stronger than that. You don't just kind of, you know, swayed by the wind. Come on, ask for your right to be able to read and listen to things that are out there in the world. Yeah, I think that's one of the requirements now of being a professor and being on campus is to try to fight back against that stuff. I mean, the DEI stuff, the the CRT stuff, the Chris Rufo stuff. I mean, I think all of that's silly. But you have, I mean, there's a point there that some of this stuff is is obviously not something I find uh, conducive to good learning practices. But, you know, Nico, you read that line and I knew there was that, that little extra bit. And you said, we're not experts about journalism. Do you know what the next two sentences, next two words were or trauma journalism or, and then however trauma and lived experiences, one of the great nonsense phrases of our time are not open to debate. I don't know what, if there's non lived experiences, but trauma and not open to debate. That, my friend, is not what you should be at university for. Everything is open to debate. And I even, you know, I'm probably an extremist on this when I think, you know, Holocaust denial is open to debate because let me at them. I'll, you know, you make short work of these people in 10 minutes and, you know, make them look like fools. There used to be a whole type of class that you would see at colleges and universities, even high schools, where they'd bring in extremists from all sides. They'd bring in the Holocaust denier. They'd bring in the Klan's person. They'd bring in the Black Panther. And the purpose was to kind of expose students to it and to argue with these people. But That's why we- you know the name of Nazis from this time. There was a guy named Tom Metzger. 
who was a complete psychopath, and he would show up on television shows, and he was the wrestling villain. He'd be booed, and he'd be it, it would be shown very quickly to be a very, very silly person who knew next to nothing. And people, their lived experience, they could compare to the things that this person was saying, which is dystopian nightmare that didn't exist. But the problem is, of course, that nobody still wants to say that I don't like speech. I don't like free speech. But what it's much easier, obviously, to say that I don't like violence. And if speech is violence, you're going to say that you're pro I'm opposed to violence, my friend. I'm opposed to trauma being inflicted upon people. Who doesn't like that? I mean, like you said about DEI, who doesn't like diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, that Orwellian thing where you start defining things in North Korea, who doesn't like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea? <laughs> Those are three words that precede Korea, all of which I think are pretty good. And then you do it in this way. You say, well, this is what this means. I mean, the, the, we haven't, I don't think, paid enough attention to, I mean, Greg, your, your, your boss, who wrote a fantastic book about this with John Hyde has, but we haven't paid enough attention to swatting down this idea that words are violence and harmful. And, you know, if we're going to talk about Twitter in a bit, I'll tell you that the Twitter thing is that there are people that I talk to now that can't imagine. They're like, I saw this thing on, on Twitter the other day. I can't believe they're not even getting banned. Well, you know, my friend, eight years ago, no one even thought that. There would just be crazy people. There'd be Alex Jones and you would ignore them or you'd make fun of them and they would go away. But the actual exposure to these ideas is like being exposed to radiation, they think. It's just going to get into your system and you can't. Yeah, and the corollary to this is uh, the idea that impact matters more than intention, you know? And that totally, this dogma of impact outweighing intention is becoming, it's in one of the student um, uh, statements, not the student, but I think another student made a statement in the student newspaper saying, our institution at Hamlin, we are taught that impact matters more than intention. I mean, I'd like to give Hamlin the benefit of the doubt and my colleagues out there to think that this is not what they're teaching, but clearly the students are hearing this message. And that is very disturbing because you've kind of just, it's not, then it's no longer debatable because then you just have to trust someone for what the impact of something is and you can't even question them and you can't have it allows you to say that Mark Twain is no different than the Turner Diaries, because they both include words that are that are racially that are you know racial slurs and inappropriate. Context does matter. <laughs> yeah, well, it does, and folks are searching for you know because you can now gain a sort of power or social cachet by claiming offense or claiming victimhood. People are now searching for ways uh, to become offended. And we saw this with the Stanford kind of compendium of hard, harmful language. And, and just as we were hopping onto this podcast, something came across my desk from uh, the USC School of Social Work, where they are now banning or removing the term field from their curriculum and practice and replacing with practicum. Uh, the I'm going to guess that there's a slavery idea. Yes. What is the Quoting here, this change supports anti-racist social work practice by replacing the language that could be considered anti-black or anti-immigrant in favor of inclusive language. Language that can be uh, language can be powerful, and phrases such as "going into the field" or "field work" may have connotations for descendants of slavery and no immigrant one is workers. About these but, but obsessed people. But now they do, right? It's like you're priming them to become offended by things that they weren't offended by, by before. You know, no one was offended when they went into the Supreme Court and saw the depiction of Muhammad, but now they're going to be primed to do that. And because trauma and safety and offense are now, uh, you know, the language of power in our society, uh, 
Feels it, a bit it, of a stretch, guys. I, I know, I know. <laughs> but this is here. It's a letter from January 9th uh -huh. to the practical I was actually, education by the way, department. Uh, speaking of which, I just said field is a bit of a stretch, guys. I was yelled at on the campus of Evergreen for saying guys. I just, you know, a habit of speech since I was a kid. And uh, they said, um, this is actually a true story. And I said, they said, you, we would prefer if you said y'all. And me being the complete idiot that I am decided this isn't a, a, a wonderful time to make a joke and said that I don't appreciate the appropriation of Southern culture. It was like a pin drop. Nobody said anything. People just looked at me and I was like, okay, but it wasn't the best joke, but you don't have to say nothing. But yeah, no, that, that's the stuff. I mean, the policing of language, which I've always found really interesting because it, the, the start of it is never, one never starts by saying, this is why one has to do it. Here is here here are the benefits. Usually, I mean, if you take a pill, if you mm -hmm. go to you know this doctor says you should do this every day. Why? Show me the evidence. What's it going to do for me? These little tweaks of language. There's no evidence anywhere that this has any effect on people's lives, you know, for good or ill. Or you're raising I'm, your, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm wrong about this. There's you know, evidence to the contrary. I would say. Contrary. Yeah, there there yeah, is yeah, evidence to the contrary yeah. with trigger warnings that actually when you prime students to be offended, they are way more likely to be offended and be upset. And so that ruins the learning experience to begin with. So I'm a very anti-trigger warnings, yet I am very pro-context. I think that is a responsibility of an academic to give context. But trigger warnings like that, I think mostly are just nonsense. But you're completely right. It's there is no evidence for this, yet we find institutions of higher learning conforming to this baseless idea and not only conforming to it, but promoting it. I think about the Stanford list and all I keep thinking about, it's a multi-phase, multi-year project. I'm, I'm just wondering how much money is going into this? Well, it's the least academic thing I've ever seen, too, because it re repeats about a thousand myths in it of like, this actually is from this. And you, the etymology of these words, you go and look them up. You say, that's not true. And it isn't true. And they just, I mean, it's wild that this is coming from one of the most prestigious universities in America. But this kind of stuff, you don't have to do any real work, right? If you, particularly when you're talking about race, this is something that I find really offensive is that we have all these endless conversations amongst idiot university professors who live in lo lo lovely places, you know, like Ann Arbor and Berkeley and Cambridge, whereas all around them in places like Chicago or in Boston or in San Francisco, there's massive drug problems, there's, you know, uh, gang violence problems that disproportionately affects uh, black people in this case, if you're talking about race, specifically about, about uh, you know, black and white racial issues. I hate saying people of color because it's too confusing for a variety of different reasons. But if you sit there and nitpick at words, fantastic. If you go after a person for tweeting something when they were 12 and now they're going to be in the NHL, we should probably prevent them from going into the NHL because of what they said when they were 12 and didn't really know anything, rather than doing something that we can't do anything about, actually. We can't solve the problems that, you know, go, I, I do this all the time. And we, we talk about it in the podcast quite frequently. I always just drop this in there. I said, do you know, it was always in a Monday or a Tuesday thing. Do you know how many people were shot this weekend in Chicago? 50, 60. It's unbelievable. It's like Chechnya in the 90s. No one fucking cares. The important thing on university campuses, though, is that we just, you know, death by a thousand cuts of little offenses that no one, because of course, intentionality is, makes no difference at all. They love to find the victim. And you go back and read this stuff, and they're not comparable, by the way, in, in any significant way, but you look, and I'm obsessed with the, the Soviet Union, particularly in the, the, the late 1930s, the original trials in the 1930, 31, and then the purge trials happen. It's the language of it. I mean, you go and read Arthur Kessler's book, Darkness at Noon, 
of this constant trying to correction of language or saying the same thing wrong until you get them to admit that they did the wrong thing that they know that they didn't do. And I was very impressed in this case uh, in Hamlin that, that the professor didn't apologize. So many times in the press, professor, and they don't believe it, but they're trying to save themselves. I get it. I understand. There's a, I know you were friends with Christopher Hitchens, uh, Michael. This, this whole discussion kind of reminds me of a story that he would tell about um, Samuel Johnson, the great lexicographer. Um, he created his first uh, dictionary, and he was waited upon by the, uh, by, uh, the upper class uh, women in London society. And they come to him and they say, uh, Mr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson, um, you know, we must commend you for not including any vulgar words in your dictionary. And he responds, well, I must commend you for knowing where to look. <laughs> right. And it's, exactly. It just, it just seems like we're like, we're peeking over our neighbor's fence in order to try to find a fence, uh, peeking yeah, over their fence to was, find a fence. It yeah. was unintentional, but it worked. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, well, do you guys have 15 extra minutes? Sure. Sure. Because yeah. I have, Apparently yeah. spent forty five. I did of get this. laid off. So <laughs> if you want to Good do like a Bergman film, that's like four I and a half hours. I should say, um, before, are you trying to move on to a different topic? I was going to pivot slightly. Yeah, but before we go, when I'm happy. To I, hear. I just do want to kind of point out that um, Care National, while they haven't commented on the Hamlin situation, did say that the showing of they do not consider the showing of these kinds of images from the 14th century as Islamophobic, and I think it's important to say that. And I also think that it's important to note that uh, the Muslim Public Affairs Council made a statement yesterday, which was a very good and strong statement, saying that this is showing these images is not Islamophobic. It's not. It's part of many Muslims. It's part of the Muslim tradition, and they don't see a problem with it. And, and I should note, it's the person who took the leading hand in drafting that statement credits you, Amna, uh, for inspiring the response. Uh, which which was nice. Yeah, they gave the credit. Don't you love it when something you write actually has an effect? Rare. <laughs> it's, it's so rare. Not you. It's rare for me. I mean, during the the um, the Charlie Hebdo thing, there was some woman who was interviewed or wrote something in the Guardian who said she had read the thing that I'd written in the Daily Beast, and said, "Oh, I didn't I didn't realize that it was also a newspaper." that was deeply, deeply offensive to Catholics about to about a 10 to one ratio because they hate the church in, in, in France. Um, and there was, I, I, I opened it up the other day um, uh, on the website and there was a bunch, uh, uh, you know, an ex-pope just died. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a bunch of images that, uh, you know, um, as a not really a Catholic, I, I thought were quite funny. So. Well, I wanted to ask if you're about real Charlie. Catholic. Don't look at them. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about Charlie Hebdo, right? Because uh, Michael, back during that attack, which happened eight years ago on January seventh, yeah, it's twelve people were killed. Um, you know, Charlie Hebdo pulls uh, by the way, punches. Quick, quick, quick thing: twelve uh, people at Charlie Hebdo. A Muslim was killed immediately after, who was a police officer, um, and mm -hmm. trying to stop uh, these scumbags, and he was shot and killed. And I think the total death toll was closer to fifteen or something, with other people that weren't at Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, yeah I mean, they're they're publishing a uh, special edition commemorating the 2015 attacks. Uh, I, I believe one of the images that they're planning. And it's hard for me as a non-French speaker to kind of understand all of what they're planning. Um, but my understanding is that there was going to be one cartoon mocking uh, the Ayatollah Ali Khomeini, uh, one of Iran's leaders. Uh, and the Iranian government responded by saying, and this is a translation, this will not go without an effective and decisive response. 
and Iran will not allow the French government to go beyond its bounds, which is kind of a failure of understanding of how <laughs> French society works. Like, unlike Iranian society, uh, perhaps, like the government doesn't get it to say what people publish in a satirical magazine. But I, I wanted to bring up this conversation, one, because we have the anniversary, but two, because whereas the, the Hamlin image was, um, you know, it, it was a image that was created by a Muslim kind of in reverence of, of the, the tradition. Charlie Hebdo is, is not in reverence. It's mocking. Uh, it does it <laughs> of Islam. It does it of, of Catholicism. It does it of all sorts of religion. It fits within this kind of larger French um, secularist satirical tradition that I think, Michael, you've done a great job commenting. Yeah. A very about. left-wing tradition too from Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, I mean, so how do, how do we think about, how do we, how do we yeah. think about that, right? Well, I'll tell you what, the, the interesting thing is that the Iranian government very consistently misunderstands these things from the West. And when um, uh, uh, Ilan Posten in Denmark did the, uh, the you know, Mohammed contest, and this, by the way, they're doing a contest again. The Iranian is, is sending your, drawings about the the mullahs and that's what they say the mullahs um they responded uh iran responded at the time and they had a holocaust denial uh cartoon contest which is a very convoluted thing a holocaust denial uh contest they said well because there's laws against this in in, in the UK, which i which i oppose by the way in, in europe and um no one cared <laughs> they're like okay great <laughs> yeah we have like you know front national in france we have people who have you know, the leader of one of these big parties once said the Holocaust is a, quote, detail of history. We're fine with this. And yeah, it's stupid, but, you know, do it. Go ahead. Um, in, in Charlie Hebdo's case is that they come from a very fine, very rich French tradition of mocking people through, you know, editorial cartoons. You can find them throughout, throughout French history. And it kind of has a 60s kind of vibe to it too, was when it was very, like, it was very offensive to people. If you wanted to get people's attention, you attacked the church, right? And they did that very frequently and people got mad. No one ever tried to shut them down. No one ever tried to haul them into jail for it. They just accepted it and fought back. Um, now, obviously with France's colonial history and the, the, you know, war in Algeria and the number of people, so look, the terrorism that France was experiencing actually happened in the 90s. It was pre-9-11. People forget that there was something that existed before 9-11. But so this is part of the culture, Front National becoming a very big thing too. But Charlie Hebdo's, one of their biggest uh, targets was uh, the Le Pen family. thought they were absolutely absurd people. Um, and their attacks have never been, and they're very clear about this, have never been on immigrants. They don't attack people from Africa. They don't attack... They attack an ideology that is held by a small segment of people from a particular class of immigrants. So it's immigrants, Muslim immigrants, Islamists within the Muslim Im uh, immigrant community. It's a very small kind of thing. And people misunderstood that because I thought the response of people in America who had never looked at, and I've been paying attention to the, to the, uh, the newspaper, magazine, whatever you want to call it, for many, many years and when I lived in Europe, and people are instant experts on this and said, oh, good Lord, how Islamophobic is this? Well, if it were, so what? You know, I mean, if that's, that's what you deal with, right? You have a paper that's Islamophobic. You have a paper that hates Catholics. You have people that don't like Americans, that don't like black. You don't go and mow them down with AK-47s when they're in an editorial meeting. Now, contextually, to explain to people that it's not even like that does, in fact, make it worse 
because they're people you can actually identify with, people you can actually sympathize with. Their families, the people who, who wrote these editorials, wrote these cartoons. Sharb, one of the guys that was murdered, had a, they put out a little book of his uh, after he died. Yeah, I have that on my... Yeah, it's quite good. And it was savaged here and saying, oh, it's so Islamophobic and blah, 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 which is such a, it's a phrase now that is so divorced from anything real. There's nobody that- Wasn't that book about freedom and art or something? Yeah, it was about that. It was about freedom and art. But it is, it's this, there are people in France, let's not be, um, you know, let's be clear-eyed about this, that don't believe Muslim immigration should be allowed. At all. That's they're they're effectively racist who don't believe they want white culture to survive in France. These people exist in Sweden. They they exist in in Germany across Europe. But most of the people you talk to have a kind of arch and eyebrow about immigration policy, are you know upset about certain things that have happened over the years in France, and they associate it with an immigrant population. Now the job for for people in the press in France and people in general is to explain that you know, that's not everybody. And I think most people are actually in that world. And definitely Charlie Hebdo, definitely Charlie Hebdo was not responsible for any of that kind of feeling because what their ideas were, were specifically about the ideas of Islamists. They attacked them specifically. But people tend to conflate all this stuff. So when the uh, anniversary, the, the uh, memorial issue came out of Charlie Hebdo right after the the murder. I don't know if you remember this, the green background. Yeah, I've got it hanging on the wall. guy saying like, you know, I can't remember the caption was. It was something like, you did this for me kind of thing. And has a turban on. Every English language publication said they did it again. They put Muhammad. No one said, this is not Muhammad. No, no one said this was Muhammad. But you have this. They say, well, it must be Muhammad. They're trying to offend people. No, it was a Muslim saying, what the fuck are you guys doing? Why are you doing this on my behalf? And this idea that they're always so. For instance, the cover, the cover of this week's, is really something else. I don't know if you saw it, but um, uh, no, Lord. we can try and put it up. We can find it and try. And if put you can it up try and put it for... up, uh, here's your trigger warning, people. Um, there is a woman lying prostrate, you know, on her back, legs spread open, naked. And I'm I'm sorry, people. I have to describe this as it is, but there are a bunch of women, um, Muslim women walking into the women like miniature women walking into oh i did see this yeah i saw this vagina and the 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 mullah is saying go back to where you came from which is a feminist it's, it's a big you know it's a feminist you can think it's funny or not but it's a feminist idea it's like the go back to where you came from from women and you're oppressing these women and it's about the the hijab uh, protests and everything these are people that do satire with a sledgehammer and if you don't like it fine but I, you know, when people said at, at Penn that we're celebrating Islamophobes, that people were attacking the marginalized, I found that deeply offensive for a number of reasons. But more than anything, I found it offensive because, you know, I know lots of people in France. I know some people who are Muslims in France who are fairly secular people, but they would identify as Muslims. Uh, they would not say that they were set upon by Charlie Hebdo because they're not fucking Islamists. They don't believe in a caliphate. This, they don't believe this is all the time around the time of ISIS, around the time of the war in Syria is going crazy. Um, this is not, they don't believe themselves to be targets. Of well, when, when um, PEN America gave its Courage Award to Charlie Hebdo after these, these sorts of attacks, it was famously atta attacked <laughs> verbally in this case. Yeah. Um, for, the, for giving an award to the survivors. For, for giving an award. And, and, and Salman Rushdie, 
famously was critical of uh, of these folks. Um, very, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Um, why do you, do you know why he was Michael? I mean, I, I can speculate what, but I mean, I imagine this was personal for him. It was personal for him, obviously, because and wasn't he the president of Pen America? Not, not then, but previously. Yeah, uh, it, it was just after Peter Godwin. I'm trying to remember who it was at the time, but um, you know, thereby, for the grace of God, go I. I mean, mm -hmm. it, what would they say if it happened to him? Mm -hmm. Because who is the person that is has the scale of offense? Well, that's not offensive enough for a murder, but this one is. Um, because if you don't remember what happened in. In 1989, and what started in Bradford in in the UK, and you know went across the world. I mean, I have a I have a DVD of a film that was a hugely successful film called International Gorillas, and the film is, it was made in Pakistan. And the film is a two and a half hour epic, in which these uh, a gang of guys try to find and murder uh, Salman Rushdie. They're the heroes of the film, by the way. Oh, I remember um, he talked about this at Fires Gala uh, in oh, 2019. Well, they banned it in the UK, and he he argued he, he argued no, do not ban this, and they unbanned it, and no one went and saw it. Did you know in the UK? I believe this is the case. In order to get your film distributed, it needs to have it needs to go through the government to give it like yes, a rating. Yeah. And, and they, I, they famously did it to uh, Quentin Tarantino with uh, Reservoir Dogs. They wouldn't release it. Really, and it didn't. It didn't get its certificate. Yeah, so they banned you know this anti Rushdie film. And someone was deeply offended. It was like, no, this is the whole point. This is what I'm arguing is that, you know, allow these people to, you know, and look, he wasn't, he was feeling safe um, after many, many years of this. And it only takes one deranged lunatic, but, um, but you cannot prevent this stuff by preventing the distribution of say his book in paperback or these movies about him or something. That's not how it works. Well, they did get Salman. Uh, this one deranged lunatic did, that is, in August. Uh, fortunately, he survives, but my understanding is he lost sight in one eye. There was a nerve that was severed, stabbed um, multiple times. I do remember, Michael, that at the time of the attack, this was headline news. I, I think I got a push notification about it. It was like the lead story on my Apple News app, right? Um, you know, everyone was reporting on it. Everyone cared about it. It was kind of like a five-alarm fire for us here at FIRE. Um, but you recently in a fifth column podcast said you've been subsequently um, not dismayed, depressed. but like sad and not, depressed yeah. because it's not, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the, but uh, you know, I, I have to wonder, it's like in our very fast news cycles, right? A story today often fades. Like what were you hoping to see out of, out of Rushdie? You know, it's a good question because I had to think about that a bit myself as I, you know, we need more news to keep this the hungry maw of the of this media machine going you would imagine you would you would have a little bit more and people trying to you know one uh, near post did an interview with the guy in uh prison and uh oh really parents, i haven't seen that yeah very it was very brief and right afterwards right after he got arrested huh. and um, it sounds like you saw that i heard about it i didn't yeah. see it but i heard about it yeah, and his parents, who I believe are first-generation immigrants, who were like, "We disown him. He's a piece of trash." So, also really important to you know note that he was not, you know, it was not forged in this in this kind of you know crucible of hatred in his own family. They, you know, I mean, it's often the case you see with radicals in the UK too. I mean, their parents are normal and fantastic, and these people have grown up in the UK um, less so. <laughs> the ones that I mean, I'm just talking about the ones that that leave and go join ISIS or become Islamists. But yeah, I, I don't know what I was expecting. And it's a very good question because 
I think that, that, that the fact that it disappeared so quickly and people weren't checking in, um, you know, the symbolism of a writer's hand being severed, um, eye being kind of gouged out. I mean, the tools of his trade, um, you know, people said that about Hitch when he got throat cancer. You know, you went around speaking against God and look what happened to you. Um, and this, this kind of thing that one would expect, you know, I don't know why, is maybe because it's been so common and when in 1989 when it happened, it was a complete shock. And Iran to us was such a hate figure in the mind of people in 1989. It's been normalized in a way that like people don't think of Iran as the single kind of evil entity in the world. There's people did that actually in America in the 80s after the hostage crisis. It was Iran and Libya where these two places like, oh, Iran, so crazy, this dark kind of place. Um, but after 89, I think the fact that it became common enough that we knew of kind of lone wolf, like, look, another thing that didn't get attention, a, um, you know, white Christian kid who radicalized himself at 17, 18 years old, attacked a police officer with a, with a ax uh, in Times Square on New Year's Eve, and it's barely been mentioned. Um, and I think that there's a bit of just not exhaustion, but like, you know, there's going to be a radical here and there that's going to do something bad. Well, well, I work in yeah, media, know. you know, I, yeah. I work in media and it's very rare that a story has legs beyond a couple of weeks. I mean, you get the original reporting on it and then you get the think pieces and then the story goes away until you have a new development. And but he's um, one of us. That's what you think, right? That's typically what happens in, in journalism is that if something happens in the media and it affects somebody in the media, you get, it gets a lot more play because we're biased but yeah, but I, towards but, people who are writers, you know? But you can't keep writing the same story, right? You need new information. Course, and I, I think uh, uh, Rushdie's camp has been pretty tight-lipped about how he's doing. There's been drips here and there. Um, mm -hmm. and, you can find and, out if you want to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you ask, yeah, I don't know if it's... If ask the right people, they'll tell you. Yeah, they'll tell you, I guess. But you, you kind of need the new story. Um, yeah, no, I get that. I, that's also true. I just, I was so, it was kind of jarring to me that it was like, it happened and, you know, because of, you know, I, I've had a personal relationship with him and, you know, I, you know, he's been in my universe for, for a while and I, I have, I disagree with him on almost everything and I have an enormous amount of respect for everything he writes, despite the fact that, you know, I don't do magical realism in, in literature and his politics are very different than mine and I just love the guy and think he's uh, brilliant. So I guess it's, it was a personal thing, I guess, was like, oh, really? No one cares? So. Well, I, I don't know if either of you have read the Satanic Verses, and Amna, you might have some insight uh, into this from the doctrine. It's like, I've never quite understood exactly what got him in trouble in that, right? It's like, my understanding well, of the Satanic Verses yeah. is that there's like these revelations uh, to Muhammad that he at one point decided to recant or say they weren't actual revelations. And he has a dreamlike sequence in the satanic verse. And I can't do magical realism. I tried to read his books. I just can't do it. So I don't, I don't quite understand exactly what the, the cause of the offense was, or even if it's, if it's offensive within the Muslim community, or if it's like something like the Hamlin thing where it's a point of contention. I think it's certain political entities that got offended for reasons which were not so much to do with religion as to do with how they read, perhaps, that they were being depicted in the book. You know, Rushdie does write about political figures. He's he's done things on Indira Gandhi, on Zia. Um, he's, so that book needs to be, it's not, it's about a lot more. Actually, the political dimension of it, I think, is more um, interesting than what it sadly became uh, known for. So you think it, the, the 
impetus was political rather than religious, really, and and religion was kind of a convenient excuse. In certain I think sense. it's arguably yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's probably safe to assume that most of the people who are most offended by the book have never actually read it, which is the case in in often in censorship controversies. But um, very common, by the way, to be found. I'm told um, in Iran, in in Samizdat. Um, Farsi uh, edition. Um, so there were people, I mean, it's the Streisand effect, right? People were like, I don't, who are these nutbags that, you know, are burning things in the middle of England? I, I'm interested. I want to see what this is all about. And I think that most people are like, eh, it, so what? I mean, there's always a political, I think Amna's right, that there was definitely uh, a, a political purpose uh, for this uh, from the Iranian government for, for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, this was something that came from a state. Uh, that's not what happened in the uh, the the uh, case of Yulans Postan. There were two people that took those cartoons and shopped them around to try to create a satanic versus type thing to give themselves, um, you know, some notoriety. And it, it turned out that one of them was a hero. Turned out to be a hero. Turned out started off as a as a as a real villain. And um, the two guys, one of them is dead. This guy named Abu Laban, who is a Lebanese, or I think he was either Palestinian Danish or Lebanese Danish, um, who was the first imam and, and he passed away. And um, the other guy um, recanted everything, everything. And it's one of the most fascinating stories that's gotten almost no oxygen. And he did it by going to the library. I want to talk about, about you know, the most inspiring story of, you know, somebody who was said, you know, the Danish Secret Service pets. I wrote about this for Newsweek a long time ago. They told him, it's not safe for you here when he came it was in 2013, 14. And, you know, what's the most isolated place you can go if you're Danish? Greenland, which is a Danish, <laughs> a Danish protectorate. And he went to Greenland and he was like, Jesus, I got, there is literally nothing to do here. So he ended up going to the library. A very, very close friend of mine um, ghost wrote his book. And I ended up talking to him and he was like, you know, I, and, and when I started talking to him, he would send me these messages that were so, they were like, they were like really, it was, it was on these calls, actually. I can't remember this was message calls um, that were like really, you know, they like hurt your heart in a way to see somebody be led astray by such bad and toxic ideas when he would say things like, oh my God, have you, have you read, you know, Thomas Jefferson, these stuff that he had just had no interaction with. And he went back to Denmark and he, um, um, went to Kurt Vestergaard's house, the guy, the most famous uh, Muhammad with the bomb in the turban, which by the way, uh, Kurt Vestergaard always said, no one even asked me what I meant by this, by the way, <laughs> which was, you know, people seeing, Islamists themselves seeing Muhammad as this person with the bomb as a, as a way of, you know, furthering his ideas. And he apologized to him. He hugged him. Kurt Vestergaard, who had, uh, someone who had tried to kill him recently, broken into his house where his grand, grandchild was watching, um, uh, cartoons on the couch and he ran into the panic room at 80 years old and pet came and got shot the guy who was there he didn't kill him but he went to prison but uh yeah and there was a video that came out of um syria it's just a small story just of somebody who's who went that really dark route and very bravely came back the other direction and a danish uh, contingent of isis members uh, put up a video speaking a very kind of you know very heavily accented danish talking about um you know, the people that were the enemies of Islam and then they, you know, were on their knees and they swung towards a berm 
where there was a picture of this guy and they, they raked it with uh, uh, machine gun fire saying, your, your time is short, my friend. And that's what this guy walked into for and the man who was, was instrumental, the person who created the Danish cartoon crisis I and mean, created, created the spread of this idea and including fake cartoons. They brought fake cartoons to Egypt and to various other places of Muhammad is a pig, which was not in there. And he acknowledged that, that they did that to try to get people angrier because, you know, the cartoons on their own weren't that bad. And so they put stuff in there that would really seal the deal and make a case. Well, I've had Fleming Rose, who was the editor of Zealand's Post and, uh, on the podcast and before, and, uh, you know, I recommend his book, Tyranny of Silence. But before we sign off here, I, just very quickly, five minutes, um, because my listeners uh, repeatedly ask about what are your thoughts on the latest Twitter files? Uh, I wanted to address them. Uh, Amna has already <laughs> provided her caveat that she doesn't have any insightful new commentary that you can't uh, find anywhere else. But I do want to say that there's like two things that really stuck out to me here. One is how much some of these social media companies, in particular Twitter, because that's what these Twitter files focus on, twist themselves into a pretzel to reason backwards into justifying bans and actions that their policies themselves on their face do not justify, right? Like Twitter blocked the story on the Hunter Biden laptop using its hacked materials policy that, you know, listen, there, there, are, there are hacked materials that get reported on all the time. Those stories have gotten shared, but they have not reported on the Pentagon Papers. These are questions that have been raised in other contexts. Um, and you, you find through the Twitter files that officials at Twitter recognize this, that their policies don't justify it. So they, again, try and twist themselves into principle, justify it backwards. And the same thing happened with Donald Trump. You had the uh, head of the legal policy and trust say, this doesn't look like incitements on his face. Nothing he said on the platform is incitement. Um, you know, I don't think this reaches our policy, but then you have people that are, you know, twisting themselves in a pretzel again in order to justify it on the policy. Whether you think the policies are good or bad or not, the policies don't exist. So they have to then rewrite their public figure policies, which had created greater latitude for public figures to say things on the platform that maybe normal non-political figures wouldn't have the right to do. And then, of course, they are always exercised with double standards, right? Like you've got Nicholas Maduro, who has a Facebook and Twitter account, has his own election issues, to say the least, who, uh, you know, Donald Trump was the first politician. He may still be the only, though I'm, I'm not sure, and it's probably not the case, um, to be you know, permanently suspended uh, when they did that in uh, on January 7th or, or 8th. And, and then the other thing is, the government's really jawboning these companies, right? And that, that's a question that we often have uh, that we address and kind of talk about in our morning meetings here at FIRE is when does government jawboning become state action? And if you look at the courts, it's there's a very high bar. It needs to be, if you don't do this, this happens, right? And it's not enough to just say, if you don't do this, we're going to haul you before Congress and ask you questions about it. That's a job of Congress, right? That's a job of these sort of oversight committees. But you know, when you have uh, the White House press secretary say, we're deeply concerned about how, you know, hate speech and misinformation are spread on the on Twitter and we're going to be watching this closely. Or then when you have President Biden saying we need to look into Elon Musk's connection with the Saudis as, you know, maybe they're potential investors, I don't know, uh, in his Twitter buyout, you know, it becomes a little bit concerning. And I think that there is an appetite behind a lot of people who care about free speech issues to to use the legal system to kind of address this government jawboning 
but it's not a great recourse because the standard is so high. And the government itself has the right to make its own arguments. Um, to uh, it, it becomes illiberal, it becomes unsavory, it becomes concerning when they, in some cases, when they make those arguments, specifically pri- you know, when it happens privately behind the scenes without a lot of transparency. But it's not always illegal. Now, there are lawsuits happening, particularly coming out of Missouri and other places surrounding some of these. And it's, it is a developing area of the law. But given existing precedent, it's really hard to make a legal argument that unless there is a smoking gun, unless the government says, if you do this, then this happens to you, um, you have to make you, – so all you have left as a free speech advocate are the cultural arguments, the, the arguments towards what the norm should be in a liberal society for how the government should interact with – private companies. Uh, we should call out the FBI, for example, when they are sending tweets to officials at Twitter asking them to exercise or use their terms of service to take them down when those tweets are clearly jokes, clearly satire, right? And they ha- they're they getting no engagement on the platform and they have like- humor with the FBI, not surprising. Yeah. And it's like, it's an account with like first name, bunch of numbers and has about three followers, right? So- it, that's my quick hot take on the Twitter files. A lot of this, though, you know, what the new revelatory stuff for me are seeing the conversations internally on Twitter and about how to use their terms of service and community standards. And, and, and it's very revelatory to see that they are, in fact, twisting themselves into pretzels and to justify uh, the bans that they want because of their own personal ideological or political biases. But we've seen this set of evidence of government jawboning happening elsewhere. Like, that's not necessarily a new story. Fire was reporting on that long before Elon Musk uh, bought Twitter and, and revealed this. So that's my hot take. If you guys have any additional hot takes you want to provide on it before we close out. Um, Amna, do you have a, do you have a sizzling hot take on this? I do not have a hot take on it. I, I don't feel qualified to talk about it. I've been following it roughly, but I was really out of the country and a little unplugged when all of this was going on. So I'll defer to you. You are lucky because, you know, the hardest thing in this whole thing was trying to read um, stories about Twitter on Twitter because I'm like, wait, what thread am I on? Seven of 800? Oh. And I was like, good Lord, this is Which I guess is a condition. In the newspaper? Yeah, it's yeah. a condition of reporting on it. I highly recommend leaving the country for a month every now and then when you can totally unplug and come in with fresh eyes. I mean, I'll go to Greenland and I'm not an Islamist, but I'm going to go to Greenland and come back a smarter person. No, the, I think the thing about this is what's concerning is usually um, just it kind of ideologically, it's concerning when small people, um, small accounts, people attack all the conversations about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, it's, it's ridiculous to ban him for one reason, is that because if he, what happens is he goes to somewhere else. I mean, he did the truth social, whatever. How many times when he writes something over there, I guess it's truthing it. It's not tweeting it. He's truthing, which is really ironic. But these lies that he truths over there, people screenshot them and put them on Twitter. Do you get banned for that? No, it's information that people are debating. And the entire conversation about limiting access to accounts is taken as, okay, this is a normal conversation. How is this conversation being constructed? I'd actually like to go backwards a little more and just say, I don't think it's actually a totally normal conversation. I mean, there's when people are saying, you know, stupid things like the Jay Bhattacharya thing was the thing that bothered me the most. I don't know a ton about this. I don't want to get into this debate, but he's not, I mean, he's an epidemiologist at Stanford. He's not a guy in the corner 
who's trying to sell you grapeseed oil to, you know, cure your cancer. I mean, this is not some crack. Well, I mean, he, he did. And he one, turned he did, out to be right about a lot of this stuff. He, too. Yeah, he did that declaration. I forget what it was called. Yeah, the ba- Great Barrington dec- but, Declaration. But I mean, again, I, we talked about this a lot on the show over time. And I wouldn't like any platform to have taken us off when we were trying to figure these things out in real time, when there was not a lot of information. I don't blame the people who are hyper way too vigilant because I get that you were concerned. Not We didn't know a lot of stuff about this. And we end, tend, tend to go backwards, this kind of post facto thing of like saying, oh, you got it all wrong and you're horrible. No, I actually understand because we didn't know much and people were really erring on the side of caution. But there was a lot of really smart stuff that was being throttled for this reason. I, I just don't know why these people think that they can control the discourse in this way in any meaningful way beyond making everybody a little more atomized and a little more kind of ideological about these issues. And it just, it's, it's terrible. I just, I, I don't like it. I doesn't, hasn't concerned me that much in the sense that there's been no terrifying smoking gun. And the final thing I'll say is I saw this this morning is I don't like sometimes the, the, the way that Elon Musk handled this. I saw that he just gave access to this stuff to Alex Berenson, uh, who is a, who is a, a genuine crackpot as far as I can tell. And that's just my own opinion. I know people will disagree with me on that. I mean, he was kicked off of Twitter. I don't think he should have been. I believe he's suing them or was suing yeah, them. Yeah, he's suing them. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, we've learned some about you know how Twitter exercises its policies through discovery in that case, I believe. Yeah, I think they've given, they've given access to the Twitter files to him uh, in the past couple of days, which I suspect he's just Googling himself. Well, I mean, <laughs> he, I, presumably himself. if he's still suing Twitter, he would get it through discovery any, he, yes, anyway. Yeah, any case, yeah so. he would do it that way too, yeah. yeah. But, so anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I think there's going to be continued reporting coming out of this. I haven't seen any indication that it's stopping. You might have to follow a couple of uh, different threads from Matt Taibbi, although he did put together very helpfully, which I used to prepare for this podcast, capsule summaries of all the Twitter threads today yes. where he kind of summarizes. You should get Matt on to satiate your 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 listeners and get uh, Taibbi on. He's a very... I asked him to. Nice he said person. he said he would come back on, but he's too busy right now and he's, you know, I mean, sure. as, they, as they say, I, last two times Amna has been on, uh, she's been on with Matt Taibbi. Oh, oh yeah. Matt's, a, I mean, Matt's one of those guys that um, I disagree with on so much, but I find to be a really, a really lovely person. So, and I think he's a really straight shooter. I think he, he means it and uh, doesn't care. Cause I mean, he could just go the direction that he had been or what people want, the direction they wanted to go. And he could save himself a lot of grief because people really give him a hard time. And it's not a nice place to be, I wouldn't imagine. No, I think I'm interviewing him this summer at Freedom Fest. I was asked to come in and interview. So I'll be asking him these questions, at least in July. But anyway, guys, I, we've got to wrap up. i got to head to a uh, head to a meeting here. It was great having you both, uh, repeat guests. Hope to have you on again. And uh, enjoy the rest of your weeks. Thanks, Jamie and Thank you, Michael. This was great fun. Lovely to meet you, Amna. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by my colleague, Aaron Riesenella. Ross. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also post videos versions of these uh, these conversations, which you can find on Fire's YouTube channel or the So To Speak channel. Have feedback, you can email us at so to speak at thefire.org. We also take reviews and appreciate them wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I thank you all again for listening. <laughs>